Revelation 13. Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10. John goes on and he says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now we've been looking at this beast for a few weeks now, but for last time we got together, we saw that this beast actually described as what? A dragon. It had seven heads and ten horns. And you're going to see as we go back and take a look at some things that we see this picture and this imagery of what's going, going to be happening. And let me just kind of help you out here. This beast is the last one world power which will rule over the whole world before Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom forever and ever. This beast is connected and empowered by Satan in his, in his last attempt at world conquest before the millennial kingdom. And I'll explain what I mean by that. He's going to have another attempt at world conquest after the millennial kingdom. But this, what we're reading about here, is his last attempt at world conquest um, before the millennial kingdom. But that's why we saw before when we looked at the dragon, it had seven heads and ten horns. And now we see this beast that has seven heads and ten horns. Why do we see the same picture here? It's because this beast, which is a one world government, empowered, or, sorry, led by the Antichrist, is empowered by who? Satan. We see the dragon gives its authority to the beast, and that's why they look so similar. But again, like I've been saying to you over and over and over, if you had been reading and studying the scriptures all your life like a good Jew would have, and you understood what the Old Testament prophecies said as you read this and you heard this description of this beast in Revelation 13, and you hear how it's got parts like a leopard, another part like a bear, and others like a lion, you would have gone, ding! And your brain would have gone back to Daniel chapter 7. So go with me to Daniel chapter 7 and look at verses 1 through 8. Daniel 7, verses 1 through 8. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream, and he told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. 
And the mind of a man was given to it, and behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had, look closely, ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So Daniel sees this vision in his dream at night, and he writes down what he saw, and he saw four beasts come up out of the sea. Now remember in Revelation 13, at the end of chapter 12, Satan's standing on the shore of the sea waiting for something to come out of the sea, and what comes out is this beast that he sees that has seven heads and ten horns. But Daniel saw in his vision many hundreds, if not thousands of years before, that he saw this out of the sea come four beasts. And now, if you remember back to the way, way in the beginning, when we're looking at the 144,000, and how the four angels at the corners of the earth are told to hold back the wind until, don't let any wind blow until the 144,000 were sealed and protected. They weren't allowed to harm. And we see here in Daniel 7 that the, the, the four winds were now stirring up the sea. And out of the sea came the first beast, and it looked like a what? <clears throat> it looked like a lion. And this was Babylon. And Daniel, as you know, is in captivity there in Babylon. And the first beast is the one world power at that time known as Babylon. And if you even look at some of the architecture that's still there to this day, you all see all the sculptures and the architecture of lions. And Babylon was represented by a lion. But then it was conquered by the next one world power, which was Medo-Persia, which here looked like what? The beast came out and looked like a bear. Medo-Persia came and conquered Babylon and the Babylonians. And Medo-Persia was in power for a while. And then after that came the next beast, and it looked like a what? It looked like a leopard. And this is Greece. And if you do any historical study, and we don't have time to even go into all that tonight, you'll find that when Alexander the Great was in charge, and he, his conquest was fast. I mean, they covered a lot of area, a lot of uh, conquest, and they covered the ground so fast, it was kind of like a leopard, if you will. But when he died, his kingdom was divided into four kingdoms amongst his four generals. And we see here in Daniel 7, as they describe the, one, the leopard, and it said this, it said in verse... Uh, Six, after this I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. But then after he sees the beast of Babylon and the beast of Medo-Persia and the beast of Greece, he sees the fourth beast now and this one he said, I can't even describe it. It's not like, uh, and he couldn't describe anything that it looked like, he just said it was exceedingly terrifying. It had iron teeth and it had ten horns and then as I looked, from among the horns, this other horn comes up and removes three of the horns. And it had eyes like a man on it, and it spoke blasphemous things. And so what I want you to understand is, is what Daniel is seeing here is this one last one world power. It's a slight picture of Rome, which is going to come into authority after Greece. Rome took over the control of the whole world. 
But then, because of the promise of the 77s to the nation of Israel and how God was decreed 77s for the nation of Israel to finish all these things, and as you know, as we did that whole study, at the time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem and was welcomed on that day, the first all but seven years of that 490-year prophecy was fulfilled, and then Israel was put on hold, and everything was put on hold for this time of the church age. The Jews were scattered amongst all the nations like the scripture said that they would. But God had said in the very, very last days, he'll bring them all back to their land. They're not going to believe in him for a while. He'll miraculously bring them together. Ezekiel 37 said the dry bones will come to life and skin will come up on it and muscle and so on. But it isn't until the breath of God comes in them that they actually become alive again. But the Bible says that at that time, there's going to be a one last one world government that's going to conquer and control the whole world. We got a picture of it with Rome. And similar to that, and I think the Bible teaches us, and we'll get to that later on in our study, if the Lord tarries, I think it's going to come out of that same area that Rome controlled at that time. There's going to be this one last world power, and it's just terrifying. Well, go back with me real quick and take a look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 19 through 22. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me as I, I approached one of those who stood there, and, and I asked him the truth concerning all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of things. I told you to start in verse 19, and I started in verse 15. That's because my eyes are getting bad, but just stick with me. We're, we're, we'll get to 19 in a second. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth. Here's verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So he was told way, way back that this one world power is going to have control over the globe. But not only that, it's going to be given authority to do what? To the saints. Kill them. Go back with me to Revelation chapter 13. And let's take a look at it again. I want to start you actually, I said 13, go to chapter 12 first. We'll start in chapter 12, verse 13. I want to show you that this beast is connected to and empowered by Satan in his conquest to try to get control of the whole world. In verse 13 of chapter 12, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth... He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for how long? Which is how long? Three and a half years. For three and a half years, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the stand of the sea. And then we see him in chapter 13, verse 1, 
He's standing there on the shore of the sea, and out of the sea I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound seemed to have been healed. And the, the whole earth was marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for how long? Which is how long? Three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, and that is, those who should dwell in heaven. Listen to verse 7. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Now, folks, let me just tell you, it's very clear that this is the fourth beast that Daniel saw in his vision. This is that one last world power. Because as Daniel even saw in his vision, that the time when this beast comes on the earth, and this beast is in control, at the end of its time, the Ancient of Days is going to come and set up his kingdom. Jesus himself is going to come back to the earth and set up his kingdom and rule and reign. And I keep repeating times, time, and half a time, or 42 months, or 1,260 days, because I want you to understand, when you take the Bible literally and stop trying to make it symbolic, well, what do you think that means? Like when they say, when we read back about, you know, last time we were together in the book of Job about Leviathan and how fire comes from his nostrils. What do you think fire means? Does fire mean like acid maybe? Fire's fire! And when we actually take the Bible literally and you understand it, again, like I told you before, the Bible uses symbolic language, but it always tells you what it represents if it's a symbolic language. So in these places that it doesn't, when we take it literally and we start to believe it, all of a sudden it all comes together and it makes a ton of sense. There is coming on this earth, I believe pretty soon, a one world government that is going to be put together from ten kingdoms that are all going to come together for this purpose of this one world government. From among them, another one is going to rise up. We've seen him already show up on the scene back at the beginning of our study. He comes on a white horse, pretending to be like Jesus, but he doesn't conquer, conquer with a bow and arrow. His bow had no arrows, if you remember. He uses intrigue, and three of the kings are removed because of this guy, and the rest of them give their authority to him. But who ultimately is controlling him according to the prophecy? Satan is himself. Remember, he's been cast to the earth at that point. He's still allowed to be in the presence of God. He's the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us day and night in the presence of God. But at that point, at the midpoint of the tribulation, he will have lost the war in heaven. He'll be cast down to the earth, and he's going to go after Israel via the Antichrist. And that's why Jesus said, when he was told, what will be the sign of your return and all this stuff? And he gives them the picture of the first six seals. He gives them the picture of what's going to happen in the beginning of the tribulation with the wars and rumors of wars and all these different things. And earthquakes, and then he says, but when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, if you're in Judea, run for your life. If you're in the field, don't go back to your house to get your coat. Because what's going to come on the world is the worst time ever in the history of the world is worse than it has ever been, nor will it ever be like this. And Jesus goes on and says, if those days weren't cut short... 
No human being on the face of the earth would live. That's how bad it's going to be. And he saw this beast, Daniel did, that was just different from the others. And, and it was so terrifying and it just destroyed everything. And it was given authority to make war on the saints and to prevail over them. John sees this exact same beast now at this time with Satan standing there waiting for him to come up. And he then gives his authority to this beast. And this beast is going to rule over the whole earth. And let me just ask you a simple question. Besides those of us Christians who don't like the idea, is not the world trying to just get together and just, they have in their mind, it would be so much better if we would all just have this one common, I mean, they're trying to make, you know, North America and South America become one country, you know, and, and all this stuff. And they just had their global warming climate change thing where all the nations would just get together and have common rules that control us all. Let me just take a real quick second and tell you a little ironic thing about that that I thought about this week as I saw all the nations get together to talk about the greatest threat that's really to us, which is climate change. Um, but <laughs> sarcasm. Um, they think that if we can just get all the nations to agree to these laws and change their emission process and everything, we can stop global warming. Isn't that what they say? Stick with me here. For those of you who know what's still to come, if we ever get there in the rest of our study, in the second half of the tribulation, the Bible says the church, as you know, will not be here. So those of us who will fight against this nonsense and think it's stupid, think how, how very bigoted it is that we think as humans that we can control the, the climate on the earth. God laughs when we think we have control over the climate on the earth. But those of us who... Understand this, we're gone. And there's a great delusion, the Bible says, that's happened on the globe, and the world all gets together. And they enact these laws. And the Bible says that what is coming is, there's going to come a time when they think everything's cool now, where the sun is going to burn every single person on the earth. In essence, God's going to be saying, you think your laws are going to stop this? <laughs> You want a hot sun? You want, you want global warming? I'll give you global warming. It's coming, folks, if we read our Bibles. But I want to stop for a second and say thank God for the promise of Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Now, some of you might know what I'm talking about. Some of you might not. Remember when Jesus sent his letters to the seven churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation? He would give warnings to these churches, but he would also give promises that applied to all the churches. And that's why he always ended with, Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. He made a promise to the church in Philadelphia. He says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole earth. Now, that wasn't just written to the church in Philadelphia. That was written to all of us. He's made a promise that he's going to keep us from the hour of trial that's going to come on the earth. Now, he didn't say that we wouldn't experience tribulation on this earth. The Bible said that that's going to happen. In this world, there will be tribulation. There will be trouble. Actually, each day has enough trouble of its own, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Don't worry about tomorrow. Each day's got enough trouble of its own. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, for those of you that remember it in the King James translation. Each day has got enough trouble of its own. The, do not hear me say that as Christians that God's going to keep us from trouble. That's not what the Bible teaches. But there is a time coming on the earth. The Bible said it was that one last seven-year period prophesied by Daniel to the nation of Israel, for city of Jerusalem and, and, and Israel. 
During that time period known as the tribulation period, we will not be here because God made a promise to the churches, I'm going to keep you from this time. So when we read the saints here that are prevailed over and conquered by this one world government, it doesn't mean the church. It means those who are believers during the tribulation. You understand, there were such a thing as Old Testament saints, right? Were they a part of the church? No. There's also tribulation saints. They're not a part of the church either. They're believers who believe in Jesus. But they're going to be, just about all of them, killed for their faith. And mainly, as you'll see next time we get together, because they won't take the mark of the beast. We're going to deal with all that when we get back together in the first of the year. But because this one world government will be in control over the whole globe, they're going to have it set up that if you want to eat or buy or sell anything, you have to receive this mark. And if you receive this mark, the Bible says you've damned yourself at that moment. For those who come to faith during the tribulation period, those who believe in Jesus during the tribulation period, you're going to see more about this later on tonight. Because they don't take the mark, they're going to end up dead. They're going to end up dead. And God has allowed it. Now, let me also take a second here and deal with something else. As you know, I, I, some of you may know, I just came back from a prophecy conference in, in Dallas uh, last week. Actually, it was about this time last week I was flying back from Dallas. And then my luggage came the next day. <clears throat> There's a problem that's happening right now in the globe that unfortunately is spreading to the churches. As you know, if you watch the news at all, the world as a whole, are they pro-Israel or anti-Israel? They're anti-Israel. The Bible said that, by the way. The Bible said that that's going to happen. It's going to get worse and worse to the point that every nation on the planet is going to turn against Israel. The Bible says it's going to happen. It doesn't look good for us as a nation. Plain and simple. Because if the Bible says every nation on the earth turns against Israel, that means either America is involved or we're no longer of consequence. We're no longer a nation. Either way, it's not good for us because he's going to curse those who curse Israel. <clears throat> but what's starting to happen now in Christendom is that most of mainline Christian denominations are anti-Israel and pro-Palestine. Because of their understanding and their interpretation of the Bible when it comes to eschatology or last things, they actually believe that God is done with Israel He's rejected Israel. He hates Israel. And there are many Christians. And folks, if you even took the time to begin to even look, they're becoming very, very vehement in their hatred toward any of us who believe that God's for Israel and not done with Israel. And that there's a church age that comes to an end. And we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. There are many, many Christians now that are bidding very, very nasty toward any of us who believe what I teach. But what they're saying is, you pre-trib Christians, you Christians that think that, that Jesus raptures his church before the tribulation, before this time on the earth, you are escapists. You just want to get away from trouble, and so you believe in a doctrine that's really not even in the Bible, that just to get away. Well, let me just say something to you first. Is God going to spare us from this time? The Bible says yes, but that's not why he's doing it. 
He's not taking us away to have us avoid it. Listen closely to what the Bible says. He's taking us away because the, the prophecy says that before the Antichrist can be revealed, the one who restrains has got to be removed. The reason the church is going is because when God removes his restraining influence on the earth through the Holy Spirit's acting through the church, when he removes that from the earth so that the wickedness would really pick up, we go with him. Do you understand? Now, it's not the Holy Spirit totally being removed from the earth, but his action of holding back evil, which is happening through the church as well, when he is taken out of the way in that sense, I don't think many Christians even fully understand how much, I don't think people unchristian really understand how much God is restraining evil right now and holding Satan back. When Satan was allowed to do whatever he wanted to to Job, except touch him, what did he do? Took everything, didn't he? Folks, we have no idea how much Satan is on a leash right now, but when God says, you want him to be really in charge? I'll remove my restraining influence. And the Bible says that one of his ex exercises of, of restraining evil and slowing down the decay on the earth is through the church, the salt of the earth. Salt was a preservative. It didn't stop the decay. It slowed it. The reason we're gone is not because we're escaping. The reason we're gone is because the Holy Spirit indwells us. And he's promised us never to leave us nor forsake us. And when he removes his restraining influence on the earth, guess who goes with him? We do. But there's something else that they've been saying now recently that I, you're going to probably start to hear. And I want to show you from Scripture how to answer it biblically. They then are saying now, you people that believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, you say you're for Israel, but you're really not. See, because you teach that God's just going to take you Christians off the earth before this horrible time on the earth and leave Israel there to just suffer. If you really loved Israel, you'd stick around and help them out. Let me show you two things from Scripture that will help you answer that biblically when you hear these things, because you're going to. It's amazing how much Christianity is going against Christianity over some of these issues. Look closely again at Revelation chapter 13, verse 7. Also, this beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over what? Every tribe and people and language and nation. Now, hang on for a second. If you've been with me and it's been sinking in, just prior to this, there was a war in heaven. And Satan and his angels fought against Michael and his angels, and Satan and his angels lost, and Satan was cast to the earth with his angels. And who did he go after first? I heard it. Israel. As we know from the prophecy that two-thirds of Israel are going to be killed, one-third is going to escape during that time. But where are they now during this last half of the tribulation period? They're in the wilderness being what? Protected by God. And so Satan couldn't get Israel, what's left. He can't get them. So he turns and goes after everybody else that believes in God and holds to the testimony of Jesus. 
So when they say, you're going to leave Israel on this earth to deal with all this stuff, read your Bibles, folks. There's going to be a brief period where they're going to go through it if they don't listen to Jesus and run. And if they do run, he's going to protect them. The Jews will be protected during the second half of the tribulation, those who believe what God has said. But there's even something else I want you to hear. We don't teach a gospel that says God loves us Gentiles and he's going to leave you Jews on the earth. The gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ is for who? For Jew and Gentile. Our message is to the Jews, believe in Jesus for yourself. And you too, when he takes us from the earth, will go with him. We're not leaving the Jews here to deal with it. We say to them, believe in him for yourself. Respond, receive the offer. Have him put his spirit within you as he's promised he will for those who believe. And when he takes us, you can come too. And you don't even have to deal with what's going to happen to your nation. Do you understand? The sad thing is, when most people argue and fight over these things, they will build a straw man and then knock the straw man down. I want you to be people who know what the Bible says and you can answer lovingly from what the scripture says. So when I say I'm pro-Israel, I'm not saying I'm anti-Palestine. See, that's the problem that's also happening for many of us who are pro-Israel. We can be so strong because everybody's against Israel. We can be so strong for Israel, we can sound like we're anti-Palestine. Jesus loves them too. And actually, if you, actually, Joe Rosenberg, who's written a lot of those novels, came and spoke at one of the banquets we had there, and, and, uh, and he, he's living in Israel now, and his ministry is not only to bless the Jews, but the Palestinians. And one thing he shared with us is, God's not drawing the Jews yet. But many, 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 many thousands of Muslims are coming to faith every single day. And God's using dreams and visions and all sorts of things to get their attention. So we need to be for Israel. We need to pray for Israel. We need to let people know, hey, I understand that you look at all this political stuff going on and what's going on there. And you can be convinced that Israel shouldn't have ever gotten that land back. And that was Palestine and, and all this stuff. The Bible says that that was always given to them from this point on forever and ever. But don't sound like you're so pro-Israel, you're anti-Palestine, because Jesus isn't. He loves the Palestinians, too. And as much as it's easy for us to hate all these terrorists, I'll remind you once again most of your New Testament was written by a terrorist who went house to house killing people who didn't believe in the God he believed in. And he was having them put to death. His name's Paul. So if God can save Paul, he can save an ISIS terrorist, can he? I've actually met a few who were terrorists who've come to faith in Christ. And they're amazing people who have an understanding of the Bible like you wouldn't believe because they come from that area of the world. They understand it from a Jewish mindset or a in Middle Eastern mindset. And let me just tell you, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool when you get talking with someone like that. So all that to say, there is a time coming. There is this last beast that Daniel saw and that now John has seen. It's the same beast. And it's similar. It reminds him of the Babylonian world power. It reminds him of the Medo-Persian world power. It reminds him of the Greece world power, but it's different. And it's going to be in power at this time, starting at the midpoint of the tribulation. All right, now, let me also do something else here. Let's go to Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. Now, I'm going to ask you folks, are you mentally prepared to get a headache? <laughs> Revelation chapter 13, what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to deal with a very tough question in Revelation 13, 8. 
And I'm praying right now that the Spirit of God will give you insight and understanding because this is one of the most debated topics in the Bible as we deal with the book of life. And are there two books? Some people that I respect teach that there's two books, the book of life and the Lamb's book of life, and that they're not the same. I believe from my study of the scripture that the book of life and the Lamb's book of life are the same thing, and I'll show you that tonight. But there's a, a statement made about this book in Revelation 13:8 that's going to give us a little bit of a bellyache until we take the time to do the study. As describing all who worship the beast, it says in verse 8, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, you see there in verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here's a call for endurance and faith of the saints. Let me deal with verse 9 real quick, and then we'll deal with verse 8. Anybody has an ear, let him hear. In this time period when this one world power empowered by the Antichrist, or led by the Antichrist, empowered by Satan, has been given authority to make war against believers on the earth at that time and to win. If you're going into captivity at that time, they're going into captivity. If they're going to be killed during that time, they're going to be killed. I'm going to say something to you that I want you to hear. Uh, Sheriff Ivey has just made a lot of news saying, arm yourselves, and I think it's awesome. I think it's great. I'm not against it. Personally, we don't have a gun in our family, but that's not because we think it's wrong to have one. We just, for each of us, God will direct you how he wants you to live your life. But listen to me, I got no problem with people arming themselves. But don't think for a second that if you arm yourself and build your family compound somewhere in Montana, and you stockpile all your food, and you have your doomsday bunker, that you're going to take care of yourself during that time. What does the Bible say? This one world power was given authority to make war against believers at that time and to win. And if they're going to go into captivity, I don't care how many bullets you bought. If they're going to be killed, it doesn't matter how many guns you have or scopes. Because God has removed his hand of protection and he's going to let powers that are greater than us run free on this earth. You're going to see that as we get into the second half of the tribulation and the seals that are going to, the seventh seal and then the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. You're going to see demons working on the earth doing things that are beyond our human comprehension at this moment. So hear this. If you're going into captivity at that time, it's going to happen. And nothing wrong with if God leads you to prepare between now and then with every way he tells you to, but don't judge a believer who doesn't see it the way you see it, because God will tell each of us to do what he wants us to do, okay? I remember back around the time of Y2K, where everybody was stockpiling and getting ready for all the big crash that was going to happen. And Christians used to judge other Christians who weren't stockpiling food for their neighbors. And I had to say, do whatever God tells you to do. That's the right thing. And if God tells the neighbor not to, trust that God's going to do what he's going to do there. Don't think that what God told me is what everybody else is supposed to do. But it says here in Revelation 13 that not only will the believers be gone after, but everybody else, though, is going to worship the beast. Everybody else on the earth is going to think this beast, this one world power, this antichrist is the greatest. And they're described in this way. Everyone whose name 
was not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So we're going to deal tonight with this book of life thing. And how do we deal with this book of life? Well, here's how we deal with it. By a thorough Bible study of the topic in order to see that all that the scripture has to say on the subject and therefore, therefore get an accurate interpretation. Now, the sad thing is we don't have time to deal with every passage, but I'm going to hit a lot of them fast. So I'm going to ask you to get a piece of paper and a pencil and I'm going to hit these pretty quick. And we're going to lay out a Bible, quick Bible study on this book of life thing. <clears throat> First off, there are many, many references throughout the scriptures to this book of life. Philippians chapter 4, verse 3 is one we're going to start with. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 4, verse 3 is Paul's encouraging the couple ladies in the church to stop fighting with each other and get along. He says this. He says, yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. We see here now that Paul describes these other believers as their names being in the book of life. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Look at verses 11 through 15. <clears throat> Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Look, that's plural. Books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, plural, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, we, this is the great white throne judgment. This is at the end of the millennial kingdom. This is when the dead of all time are going to be resurrected to be brought before the throne of God to be judged for what they've done. There are no believers at this judgment. And we see that they're all brought before the throne and books are opened. And what's written in those books, plural, is everything they have ever done on the earth. And by the way, the book of Matthew says uh, that we'll be held accountable for every idle word. Thank God that our sins have all been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome news? We're not being judged for everything we've done. We are now under the blood of Christ. We have been given righteousness. We won't be judged for according to what we've done, whether or not we get into heaven. But he also not only opens these books whenever they stand before him and judge them according to all that they've done. By the way, God's going to keep track of those real, real bad rascals. He knows. But then he double checks. Is their name in the book of life? And anyone whose name wasn't in that book was cast into the lake of fire. Everyone at this judgment isn't there. Go to Revelation 17. Look at verse 8. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 8 says, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So here again, we see this description about those who have not been written in the book of life since the foundation of the world. So now we know this much. There is a book and I could show you more. There is a book called the Book of Life. And whoever's name's in the Book of Life at the time of their death 
goes to heaven. Whoever's name is not written in the book of life at the time of their death goes to hell. We've also seen twice, though, that those whose names aren't in it were described as having, never having their names in it since the foundation of the world. Or not actually worded that way, their names weren't written in it since the foundation of the world. Stick with me. Some of these references describe this same book as the Lamb's book of life. Go to Revelation 21 and look at verse 27. You're going to see descriptions showing that it's the same book. Revelation 21, verse 27. It says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Look at Revelation 13, verse 8. The one we started off with. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So it's pretty clear that the book of life is also the Lamb's book of life. And that those who are in it spend eternity with God. Those who are not in it do not. Now, a question arises. Is it possible then to have your name blotted out of this book? Because we've read a couple of times already in chapter 13, verse 8 and 17, verse 8, that the people whose names were not in it before the foundation of the world, can you have your name blotted out of the book then? And our first reaction would be to say, looks like not. But I'm going to show you that the Bible says that you can. That's why you need to build your doctrine using the whole of Scripture, not just a couple of verses. Because I could easily, taking Revelation 13.8 and Revelation 17.8, convince you that those who go to hell never had their names written in the book of life. Sure reads that way, doesn't it? But I'm going to show you that the Bible teaches that people can have their names erased from the book of life. Oh, and as we go to these verses, let me calm you down. It's not saying that if you're saved, you'll ever have your name erased. I'm going to show you that if your name's in it because you're saved through Jesus, it'll never be blotted out. Go to Revelation chapter 3. This is where we get our promise of that. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> Remember, Jesus is speaking, and he says, To the angel of the messenger of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He was an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As he writes to the church in Sardis, he says, as I write to the congregation, you have the appearance of being alive, but I know your real situation and you're not. Yet you still have a few in there who are worthy, who are walking with me, who are saved. And here's my promise to those of you that are really saved. I'll never blot you out of the book of life. Now, would Jesus make a promise not to blot you out if it wasn't even possible to be blotted out? It's like an empty promise. Well, some people say, Jim, this is a lie tote. This is where you use a double negative to illustrate a strong emphasis that something would never happen. Well, if you want to go there, I'll let you go there. 
But I'm going to show you two other verses that show that that's not what's going on here. Because go to Exodus 32. We're going to look at Exodus 32 and then Psalm 69, and you'll see it's very, very clear that the Bible says that people can have their names blotted out of the book of life. Exodus 32, verses 30 through 35. This is the situation where the nation of Israel has just made the golden calf, and God's not too excited about it. And in verse 30, it says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. That's a wonderful thing for Moses to say. But look at how God responds. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I'll visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Look closely again at verse uh, 33. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. According to the word of God, is it possible to have your name blotted out of the book? Can't get any more clear than that, can it? Let me show you one more example. Go to Psalm 69. Stick with me because I can see on your faces the belly aches getting bigger. That's why we got the whole Bible to help us understand this stuff. Six, Psalm 69, look at verses 25 through 28. By the way, if you were to look at Psalm 69, you'll realize that David's writing, but it's actually a prophecy about Jesus. Let me just show you what I'm talking about. Look at verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Sound familiar? Look at verse 25. May, they, may their camp be, be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. <clears throat> Folks, it's very clear that it is possible to be blotted out of the book of life. God says, whoever sins against me, I'll blot it out of the book. He made a promise to the churches, if you are worthy and clothed in white, and we're only that way because of Jesus, I'll never blot you out of my book. So now we have to deal with a very, very hard question. Is it possible to be blotted out of the book of life? Yes. Yet Revelation 13 and Revelation 17, verse 8 and verse 8, both said that these people whose names were not in the book of life since before the foundation of the world. How in the world can they have had their names blotted out of the book of life, but they never were in it? <laughs> Good guess. God knew. God knew. That's a good way to put it. The best way I can explain it to you is in Acts chapter 13. Go to Acts chapter 13. Folks, this gets back to this whole predestination free will that we love to fight with each other over. And I hope you hear me tell you. And by the way, Acts 13, we're going to look at verses 42 through 48. Let me tell you again and again and again. There are aspects of how God does his work that we have to be faithful to say we don't know fully how it happens. 
But this much we know. If you're to be saved, the Bible says God did the work. It's a gift of God. Yet, this much we also know. Jesus died for the whole world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He died not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the entire world. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. He's not willing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The Bible's very, very clear that if man is going to be saved, man has a choice. Yet this is God's work. And if you go to either side, you're going to end up in a ditch. So I say to you, stay out of the ditches and be willing to say, I don't know how it all works. But this much I know, Jesus died for everybody. His death was for everyone. And everyone has a chance to be saved. And everyone must choose. By the way, the Bible's full of the word if, is it not? If you obey, there'll be blessing. If you do not, there'll be cursing. There is, the Bible is full of ifs. If God just did it all and man had no say, there's no need for if. Yet at the same time, if you read the nation of Israel's history in Deuteronomy, the whole book of Deuteronomy, God offers them blessings and curses. If you this, I'll do this. If you this, I'll do that. Oh, and by the way, here's what you're going to do. Isn't that interesting? He gives them the choice, but then tells them ahead of time how it's all going to play out. I'm going to say something to you right now. Because a man said to me one day, he goes, he goes Jim, if, if God already knows what tie I'm going to wear tomorrow, I really don't have a choice. I said, actually, you do. He goes, no, if God already knows what time and where tomorrow, I really don't have a choice. I go, yes, you do. Here's how I'm going to put it to you. God already knows what you're going to choose tomorrow, which way you're going to go, whether you'll live for him, whether you'll deny him. He already knows that. But you don't. So make the right choice. Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 42. Paul's been preaching in a synagogue here. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Let me just help you understand what's going on here. These people that were in the synagogue heard him speaking, and afterwards they came to him and they said, we want to hear more. And now Paul understands that if they're hearing and they're responding in this way, the Spirit of God is at work in their life. Remember, no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. But look at what he says. He says, God's drawing you you better stay responding in it. Continue in the grace of God. God's doing something, you better stay in it. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed." You see it? Did they have a choice? Yet, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Folks, it's time we humbled ourselves and said, God, we don't know how you do this salvation thing, but this much we know. You've told us to bring the message to the whole world because you love everyone and everybody hears and everybody has a choice. Yet, if anybody's saved, you did it and you get all the glory. 
and we need to be okay with that and stop wasting all our time arguing for Calvinism versus Arminianism. I believe so strongly in the sovereignty of God, people think I'm a Calvinist. But then they hear me preach the other half of the Bible and they think I'm not. I'm not in either ditch. I'm going to stay in the middle of the road. So this book of life thing, let me just put it to you this way. I believe the Bible teaches us that just like in the registers back in that day, this is where we get this picture. When people were born, they were put in the registry for the city. And when they, were, when they died, they were erased. Everyone who lives is put in the book. If you trust in Jesus as your Savior, which, by the way, this book is the Lamb's book, because that's the only way anybody can stay in it. If you trust Jesus as your Savior, you will never have your name blotted out. If you reject this offer, the time of your death, because of your sin, God erases your name. Because of the fact that God sees it all now, those who don't go to heaven never really had their name in it. Do you understand? These people's names were not in it since the beginning of the world. Did Judas have a chance to be saved? Sure did. Jesus offered him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, even calling him friend when he came to arrest him. But then he was described as the one born to destruction. Well, which is it? Stop jumping in a ditch and stay in the middle. Now, we're going to close tonight with the part that I couldn't wait to get to, and I got five minutes to do it, so you have got to listen fast. Go to Revelation chapter 13, look at verse 4. <clears throat> and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? At this time, the world is not only worshipping Satan because of the Antichrist and because of this one world power and because of the delusion that's happened and they think that, man, finally our utopia is here. Everything we had hoped for is, is going to be happening. Israel's out of their land. Those pesky Christians have been gone now for a while. The world is what we want. And as they worship the beast and they see its control over the globe, they say, who's able to stand against the beast? Who can stand against it? And I'm going to show you real quickly. The Bible's already told us there's three groups. One is Jesus himself. He's already conquered him at the cross. Now is the prince of this world cast out, Jesus said, as he went to the cross. And we're not going to, for the sake of time, have you turn there. But in Revelation, actually, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God already made the prophecy when he said, the seed of this woman is going to crush your head. And he did. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, at the end of the tribulation period, you're going to see that Satan is going to be taken and he's going to be chained and thrown into the pit for a thousand years, not allowed to deceive the nations. So who can stand against him? Remember, the Antichrist in this one world power is empowered by Satan. Who can stand against him? Jesus is going to throw him into the pit for a thousand years. If you then go on to Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, you'll see that the Bible says at the end of the thousand years, he's going to be released for a little while, and then he's going to gather a whole bunch of people that have been born during the millennial kingdom to fight against Jesus and against his kingdom, and fire is going to fall down from heaven and destroy them all, and Satan will be at that time thrown into the lake of fire 
forever and ever and ever to be tormented with the beast and the false prophet or the antichrist and the false prophet who we're going to be introduced to next time we come together. And what does 1 John 4, 4 say? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So who can stand against him? Well, obviously Jesus. But there's two other groups if we've been faithful to let the Bible speak. Remember Revelation chapter 12, verse 7? Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Oh, who else can stand against Satan and his one world power? God's angels. He's already been, at this point when it happens, he will have been defeated by them. So when the world is saying, who can stand against him? Jesus has already beat him. The angels in heaven have already beat him. Oh, but there's a third group. And it's right there in verse 11 of Revelation 12. And they have, a, they have conquered him. This is us Christians, all Christians. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Listen closely as we wrap this up tonight. The Bible says that, remember, he's going to be allowed to make war over the saints and to conquer them and to prevail over them. And they're all going to be killed. But he doesn't win when he kills them. Actually, by him killing them and them saying... Cut my head off. They're defeating him. What does he want? He wants to be who? He wants to be God. And he wants to be worshipped. And when Christians during that time period say, I'd rather be dead, they defeat him. And they defeat him by the blood of the Lamb. In the word of their testimony, but listen closely, and this is important for us now. For they love not their lives even unto death. In other words, if you were to go back and look at Hebrews chapter 11, when it talks about the men and women of faith, those who were commended for their faith, at the end it goes and describes those who were slain by the sword, those who were sawn in two, those who wandered in deserts and caves. The world was not worthy of them. They were looking not for life here, but for the world that was to come. Let me say something to you that you might not have looked at in this way. Do you want to have Satan lose his ability to just do anything to you? Then lose your desire for anything here. Satan caused you to worry. It's when you're focused on here. Satan caused you to fear. It's because you're focused on here. Listen to what Paul said. He said, I've learned the secret of being content. I love that. It didn't just automatically happen. It was a process. He had to learn. He said, I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to lack. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. Jesus has got me. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Moses did not consider what he could have gotten in this life by taking right as son of Pharaoh's daughter. But he looked to 
a city whose builder was God, as in Abraham. And so, folks, I want to tell you, we too can say no to the enemy and defeat him. Well, Jesus has already done it for us, thank the Lord. But on a daily basis, because we still struggle with him, do we not? Is he not still tempting us? Do we not have to daily lay this flesh on the altar? One of the best ways to do it is when he comes in the attack, the Bible says, put on the full armor of God. The Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll leave. So my challenge and my encouragement to you as we take this time to bring this study to a close, and we'll get back together. Next time we get together, we're going to take a look at the false prophet. We're going to take a look at how Satan wants to be God so bad, he's actually going to recreate a false trinity. You're going to see that not only, as we know, is there God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit, whose role is to point everyone to the Son. You're going to see that Satan, the dragon, is empowering the Antichrist, who's pretending to be Jesus, and the false prophet is telling everybody to worship the Antichrist. He makes a false trinity. We're also going to take a look, if time permits, at who the two witnesses in Jerusalem actually are. I think the Bible shows us, and I'm going to lay that out for you. But as we draw all this to a close and get ready for when we get back together, I just want to encourage you, as we finish this year and move on to the next, ask God for his grace to have the things of this life become less and less important. Therefore, God can have more victory in your life and Satan have less. We conquer him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and we don't love our lives, even if it means we die. And how many of us, when things don't go like we think they should here on this earth, worship Satan instead of God by saying, where's God? Why didn't, oh, you're looking at the wrong place. I talked to somebody here tonight as we're doing, I said, how you doing? He says, doing great and getting better every day. I agree, because I'm a day closer to heaven. I don't know about you. I don't know what day that is, but I'm a day closer. And when we get back together, we'll be a lot of days closer if he hadn't already come and got us. But between now and then, enjoy your family. Pray that they know the Lord. Pray that someone opens their eyes, that God would open their eyes and someone shares with them. You share with them as God leads you. When you look at everything that goes on, enjoy this time in this earth. Don't, don't get, become monks or hermits. I'm not telling you that. But don't hold on to it. Realize that everything through Christ is still to come. The best is yet to come. I know some preacher wrote a book, Your Best Life Now, but nope. The best is yet to come. I love you all. Have a great Christmas. We'll see you next year. Thanks for coming.